0: It's Monday, September 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Checking in on the 2020 Democrats. Senator Elizabeth Warren continues to surge and is getting huge crowds at many of her events. While Joe Biden remains the frontrunner, these large crowds are a sign of growing enthusiasm. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for that a new plan on background checks circulating on Capitol Hill, and how President Trump has changed the White House to fit his style. Next, the movie's made it seem so simple. You get a strand of hair and you can figure out who it belongs to through DNA. Well, that was only true if the hair had a root on it. And in most cases, they don't. That has changed now thanks to a scientist who has developed a new technique that makes it possible to recover and sequence DNA from hair without a root. The scientist behind the technique is now getting packages of hair from all over, in hopes that he can identify serial killers and victims. Heather Murphy, reporter from The New York Times, joins us for this latest advancement in DNA. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There's a lot at stake in this election. And I know, people are scared. But we can't choose a candidate we don't believe in just because we're too scared to do anything else. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter at Reuters, Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's check in on the 2020 Democratic race. We had a debate not too long ago. There's been some polls done since then. It still seems that former Vice President Joe Biden is the leader of the pack, but Elizabeth Warren is showing signs of broadening her base and just a lot of enthusiasm coming her way.
1: Warren has been on the slow rise really for the last nine months since she got into the race, building support, doing the campaigning on the ground. And as she likes to remind people, rolling out a lot of policy proposals. This has really sort of made her the wonky or the nerdy candidate in the race. And voters are responding positively. So we saw out of the last debate, our most recent series of polls still show Joe Biden holding that lead, but it has consistently shown over time. And and it didn't change after the debate, Elizabeth Warren rising possibly at the cost of folks like Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, who at one point Harris had skyrocketed in the second. She's fallen into fourth or fifth and some pull sixth behind Andrew Yang. And it seems to be to the benefit of Warren. Warren's drawing big crowds. She's got lots of people showing up when she's doing events. And that's a sign of enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is something candidates can build on. Those are names they're collecting. Those are volunteers they're signing up. And there's sort of the, Uh, The image or the idea that if someone's got big crowds or people are enthusiastic about a candidate, others want to be part of that enthusiasm and part of that crowd.
0: Right now, one of the main arguments for Democrats or, you know, whoever is going to get the nomination is electability. And it's really tough to quantify what electability means But in the case of President Trump drawing these large crowds and him making such a big deal of it, it seems that this could be one of those little markers. You draw a lot of crowds, you get a lot of enthusiasm. That shows that there's broad enthusiasm there. There's broad reach. Maybe there is an electability argument there.
1: People like to support winners and candidates that get big crowds at their events look like winners. You look like you're winning when lots of people show up and cheer for you and hold signs up with your name on it. And that creates the aura of support, of enthusiasm, of a winner. And candidates build on that. It becomes sort of like a self-feeding cycle that can really make the difference for someone as they're trying to break through.
0: The Washington Post wrote up an article about Elizabeth Warren's crowd sizes. And there was an interesting section in there, they mentioned the difference in crowds. So for Elizabeth Warren, uh, one of her latest rallies, she had a a huge, like 20,000 people they were saying. And they said that people would file in shortly before she started speaking and then stay for hours afterward for a photo. And they they contrast that with President Trump's rallies, where people would stand for hours beforehand, get in, but then start trickling out before he's even done. What do you make of that?
1: This is something that Warren has decided to do that she announced when she also announced she wasn't going to be doing fundraisers anymore. So she doesn't hold closed door fundraising events. And she's taken some criticism recently. There was a Democratic strategist who suggested that maybe she was wasting her time by standing there for hours, going person by person, taking selfies with all of these supporters at the end of her event. And her response was really simple it was that anyone who's willing to stand in line for hours to take a picture with her is more likely to vote for her and more likely to volunteer and work for her campaign paint. So you're right. This is just a different show of dedication. This is a different show of enthusiasm. And Warren says you might have waited in line and got to see Trump. But for her, you get to take a picture home with her and a little memento to maybe hold on to and, and remind you of why you liked her and why you might have decided to support her at that event.
0: Let's move on to another topic, gun control. And there's this plan floating around Capitol Hill it's unclear exactly where it came from. It does seem like it might have come from the Justice Department. Bill Barr was meeting with a lot of Senators gauging their interest on it. And it is uh, really does have a lot to do with background checks. but the senators all across the board on the Republican side are saying, this is a non-starter because the president hasn't come out and said if he supports this or not.
1: I think we are seeing in this presidency a real example of how important the president is to getting any legislation done. President Trump has really been fearful of putting any of his own skin in the game in terms of backing legislation. We saw this during his efforts to repeal Obamacare. We saw this during the tax debate when he finally did support something. That was when he was able to get legislation passed. And now I think we're seeing it again when it comes to gun control. Members of of the Senate, particularly like Democrat Joe Manchin, Republican Toomey of Pennsylvania, have met with the president, have talked with each other and the president and have said, come on, like get behind something. Like we want to make something happen. We can push bipartisan legislation. We just need you to say, okay, just tell us what you want. And Trump is unwilling to do that. And I think this is largely political. It's one thing to say, Congress passed a bill and it was all I got, and they sent it to me and I signed it because it was all that showed up. It's another thing to go out and endorse legislation to get behind. Behind things because you risk making people unhappy. And Trump seems unwilling to do that here in the case of gun control legislation.
0: And Democrats want something, so they're gonna be more likely to support a lot of stuff. And this plan that was floating around expanded background checks for gun sales over the internet and at gun shows. If somebody fails a background check, that person would be reported to law enforcement officials. I think that's kind of a common sense important thing. If somebody if the background checks say you shouldn't get a gun and this person is trying to get one. Maybe that's something to look into. So really desperate leadership needed by the president on that front there. And that leads us kind of into this last question I wanted to ask. It seems that the president does have the White House now that he has kind of wanted since the beginning. He's gone through four national security advisors, three chiefs of staffs, three directors of the Oval Office operations, and five communication directors. All of the, you know, naysayers and people that were trying to get him to conform to a traditional White House structure are kind of leaving. And now he's the guy at the center. He's the guy, he's the shot caller. And this is kind of the way Trump has always operated. And it seems that he's getting that White House that he's always wanted now.
1: That's right. He's sort of warned everyone down or run them out that showed up in the beginning and thought that they sort of Seasoned Washington hands that had been around a long time and knew how Washington worked could sort of guide Trump in a way that he would do things as Republicans in Washington has done. And those people are gone. I'm sure any one of your listeners who's ever worked in a workplace that has had turnover like that is sort of having like moments of PTSD flashback. It's really (laughs) hard to work in a place like that with that type of turnover. You have no stability. You can't plan anything for more than a few months. I mean, we're talking about multiple chiefs of staff in the course of two years, really two and a half years. And the current chief of staff is still in an acting capacity. Trump won't even name him the official chief of staff. But this is what Trump wants. He likes the instability, he likes the chaos, and he likes being able to change on a dime. And that now is what he has is a White House that's willing to do those things for him.
0: Does this make him a better leader now? If if he's more comfortable, he's gone through it with a bunch of stuff now He knows a little bit more of the rules and how things operate. Does this make him a better leader now?
1: I mean, that's to be seen. We're going to have to wait and see how he handles crisis, how he handles Iran, how he handles North Korea, how he handles any surprises or bumps we may encounter in the economy. There will be tests ahead and we'll see what he does when those tests come and how he handles them.
0: Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Well, the first part of his innovation is that he was applying this method to getting that golden nuclear DNA that he'd been using for old bones and animal hair towards hair from a crime scene. So that was fundamentally the first part of that innovation.
0: Joining us now is Heather Murphy, reporter at The New York Times covering advances in DNA technology. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Sure. My pleasure. You know, the TV and movies make it seem so easy. If you can extract a strand of hair, you can find the DNA, you can find the person who it belongs to, no problem. The reality is that that is not so easy. If you don't have the root of the hair, you often really can't find out as much information as you need. Until now, there is a paleogeneticist at the University of California, Santa Cruz. His name is Ed Green. He's developed a new technique to sequence DNA from hair without the root. Heather, tell us a little bit about this.
2: So I think that there is an assumption. I think that those of us who watch different crime shows, we kind of think, ah, yeah, you know, along with the blood and the saliva, they can just grab a hair and they can figure out if it's the suspect. But actually... That's not true. If you spend much time in court proceedings, you'll find that often the forensic scientists have to get up there and kind of apologize for they found a couple hairs at the crime scene, but that doesn't mean they can identify the suspect. And this also kind of comes up when... People who are really into family history find some old hairbrush that their grandmother left behind and think, oh, cool, I can get grandma onto 23andMe, or I can get her onto these other genealogy sites. I'm just going to take this old hair and find out more about her family. But you can't unless the hair has a root. And even then, if it's like a recent hair, and that's what he has changed, is that that has been quite difficult. But now he has figured out a way to make that possible.
0: And as we've seen with the rise of genetic genealogy and how that new technique has really helped solve a lot of cold cases and obviously the most famous one capturing the Golden State Killer, this is now is receiving a lot of attention, so much so that Dr. Green is getting sent packages of hair from serial killers, victims, in the hopes that he can help identify who these people are
2: sometimes a hair is all they have you know especially when you're thinking about Old cases in which they gathered evidence, maybe even before anyone was really thinking about DNA. So a lot of these mysterious cold cases that carry on, and some of these cases also of unidentified bodies. Those bodies were collected, those remains were collected, the evidence was collected from the scene even before people were really thinking about DNA. But maybe sometimes in all those materials there is a hair. Whereas until now, they had to kind of think ah, there's not much we can do with that with his method. And sometimes in some cases, he is able to use this approach that he cultivated because he was focused on ancient DNA, ancient fossils, ancient bones and sometimes old animal hair and apply that method and that which he has kind of fine-tuned specifically to get what he needs out of it so it can be compatible with genealogy site, and then hands it over to a genetic genealogist who can then, in some cases, actually put a name to that hair.
0: Right now, Dr. Green is working with law enforcement officials on certain cases. There's a lot of secrecy involved with what he does, obviously because these are ongoing investigations, but one in particular that his technique helped out in was known as the Bear Brook Murders, and they were able to finally find out who the victims were in this, and this happened a long time ago. So tell us a little bit about that one.
2: It's interesting because the Bear Brook Murders, which is this case that has had all these ripple effects for genetic identification, that was actually sort of one of the first crossover cases that was used by Barbara Ray Venter, who went on to crack the Golden State Killer case, which then launched the expansion of this technique. So it's pretty interesting that that one case not only really spawned genetic genealogy as an approach to solving crimes, but also really spawned this other thing, which was that So the situation was this, Dr. Barbara Reventer, who's this former patent attorney who is interested in genealogy, was laying there because she was recovering from a back surgery and she was kind of bored. And she had gotten connected through this strange course of events to this case in New Hampshire, where there were a woman and three girls' unidentified bodies, and they'd been found in barrels in a state park. And in order to start her process of identifying them, she needed to get some DNA out of there. But they had been there, and there has been rain and years of rain and sun and everything else. And so the DNA was degraded even in their bones. In the end, they were able to successfully get DNA out of one of the girl's livers. But in the other cases they really had no way to get any DNA out. So she was kind of frustrated because she couldn't help with this case if she couldn't get any DNA out. And that's when she read this article in which Dr. Ed Green was mentioned. This was another weird case of a casket that was dug up from the backyard of these people in San Francisco. And she saw something about hair and she thought, okay, Hmm. he was able to get some <laughs> DNA out of hair in that weird old case, this hair that had been there in this little tiny casket with this little girl. Maybe he can help me. So she called him and that's what really got this momentum going was that she asked him if he would be willing to consider whether he could apply what he'd been doing towards this case of the women in the barrels. And pretty soon after, authorities in New Hampshire sent him hair from that woman and the girls, and he got to work trying to figure out how to apply this technique towards their hair.
0: It's just so fascinating how DNA technologies have Expanded and changed over the years, and we're able to do so much more now with less. Who knows? Maybe we will get to <laughs> catch up to where TV and movies put us, and you know, we can find any little piece and extract the DNA from there. But that's kind of where things are moving. Things are changing, we're learning more things about it. And from my understanding, in order to identify a person, You need something called nuclear DNA, which is different from other sorts of DNA that you can get off of things from hair and and whatnot. What do we know about how this technique, how this process works?
2: To be clear, he is not the first ever scientist and the first ever person focused on ancient DNA to get this golden nuclear DNA out of hair. Really, what he did, his innovation is kind of a two-parter in innovation. I mean, as he's kind of put it to me, People in the forensic world, they don't exactly read ancient DNA papers. Why would they? So these are kind of two separate worlds. So the first part of his innovation is really just essentially that he was bridging the gap between those two worlds. By Barbara Reventer calling him up and asking him if he could help, he was applying this knowledge that he had had a very large role in helping facilitate, but he was one of many people who kind of been advancing this field of ancient DNA. So the first part of his innovation is that he was applying this method to getting that golden nuclear DNA that he'd been using for old bones and animal hair towards hair from a crime scene. So that was fundamentally the first part of that innovation. And the second part of that innovation is then, you know, the way he put it to me is that, it's one thing to get nuclear DNA from a Neanderthal or an extinct cheetah, but you're not trying to find that cheetah's relatives. You're not trying to find that Neanderthal's relatives. You're not trying to figure out, which Neanderthal was that? Which cheetah is that? So when you're actually trying to not just learn about this Neanderthal or this cheetah, but you're actually trying to kind of place them within the context of their family, their descendants, so you can st- to identify them then you need very specific way of approaching it. And so that was kind of the second part of his innovation. And that's why it took him about a year to fine-tune the process between Dr. Ray Venter's request and when he did this.
0: There's about 200,000 to 250,000 cold cases in the U.S. And with these new techniques to extract this DNA, it could become another tool for law enforcement to use and really solve a lot of cases The drawback for this is that this technique that Dr. Green uses is pretty expensive right now. And a lot of labs aren't technically equipped to do this type of sequencing. I think he said that each hair costs several thousand dollars to sequence. So that puts a barrier to it right now. But things keep changing very quickly. So it's just an interesting look into how DNA really has become a boom for law enforcement, even more so now than it already was. Uh, It's just a very interesting story. Heather Murphy, reporter at the New York Times covering advances in DNA. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.